The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Greg Rapp, and I am economics editor at Market Watch. And I'm welcoming you to Barron's Live Market Watch edition on this Wednesday afternoon. And joining me today is Mickey Levy, who is chief economist for the Americas and Asia at Berenberg Capital. A little background on Mickey. I think, although Larry Summers gets a lot of the credit for sounding the first alarm about inflation last year, I think a lot of insiders know that Mickey Levy deserves some of the accolades for that. In fact, I was at a speech with Richard Clarida, the number two, former number two at the Federal Reserve a month ago, and he said that he first realized that inflation was going to be a problem because he started getting daily emails from Mickey. So Mickey is a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee at the Manhattan Institute keeps an eye on Fed policy. And Mickey, thanks for joining me today. Greg, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. I do want to go back over the last 12 months, but I do think our readers and care most, and we care here at MarketWatch about the next 12 months. So let's begin there. And, you know, there's talk about whether inflation last month peaked, you know, CPI up 8.5% annual rate. What's your view on that? Has inflation peaked or are we going to get higher inflation down the road? Greg, I think we're very close to a peak, um, a very high peak, much higher than than almost anybody had expected. But I do expect in the second half of the year, um, the inflation is going to come down, but not nearly as much as the Federal Reserve forecast. So rather than, you know, some of the uh, 0.8 and 0.9% monthly increases in the second half of 2021. I think we're going to be more in the, you know, averaging about 0.4. So the year over year is going to come down, but it's it's going to leave us with a very high um, level of, of inflation that we still have to deal with. Do you have a number? You you can say around, but if you can, do you have a number on that where inflation will end the year? Oh, I, I'd say if we if if we think about a measure of say year over year, um, if all goes well, maybe four four and a half, and um, but that's still you know double um, you know what what the Fed's longer run objective is, and and the Fed has it going to two point seven percent by year, and so it's going to be well above that. I am so eager to start our conversation that I forgot to remind listeners and viewers to submit questions. I'll I'll try to take a few questions as we go along through the next half hour. So I thank people for putting some questions in the slot already. That's always a great sign when you're getting ready to do one of these interviews and you see people are interested. So that's great. But okay, so 4.7% inflation by the end of the year and the Fed is on pace here now to raise interest rates. They're supposed to go 50 basis points next week and get up to neutral, which is in somewhere between two and two and a half at the end of the year. Do you think that's a, you know, good 
policy for them to just steadily get up to neutral by the end of the year? Well, Greg, you know, firstly, it's just absolutely clear that the Fed has, you know, really made mistakes. They've misread the data. They've they've misinterpreted inflation, attributing it just to supply constraints when you've had strong demand. And now they're in a box. So they have to raise rates to remove the, the monetary accommodation. But I I respectfully disagree with with your point that, oh, two and a half is neutral, uh, that two and a half neutrality implies that we're already at two inflation and you have the natural rate of, uh, of, of the real funds rate at a half. Um, but the real concern here is nobody, including the Fed, knows how high it's going to have to raise rates and unwind the balance sheet in order to um, you know, slow aggregate demand enough to take the edge off you know, the inflation and wage pressures without, you know, toppling the economy into recession. I would say they're going to have to move pretty aggressively here and get the funds rate to two and a half, probably three percent and unwind the balance sheet until they start seeing the effects of what they're doing. So a couple more 50 basis points move. Do you think 75 should be on the table? Is that a 75 basis point move? You wouldn't be adverse to that? I wouldn't be adverse to it, but I don't think it's in the cards. The the Fed the Fed has has basically acknowledged that it's 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 really delayed too long and made and made a major misread of things. But at the same time, it doesn't want to unduly jar uh, financial markets in the economy. Um, and and it really doesn't want to um, generate recession. So I'd say 50 uh, next week, another 50 in June, and then they'll keep raising rates. But but Greg, at the same time, next week, they're going to announce the unwinding of its balance sheet, which is pretty aggressive unwind. And the Fed is calculating that that unwind as it proceeds through the second half of this year is the equivalent of about three fed rate hikes. And of course that involves, you know, a higher bond yields, but they're thinking of it as that kind of equivalence. And the reason why they're, they're going to be pushing on, on unwinding the balance sheet is, is, is they don't want to put all the burdens on raising rates that, that might invert the yield curve. Right. So, 3% funds rate and the balance sheet steadily rolling off. Do you think they'll have to go a little bit higher than that? How, what do you think the, you know, the terminal rate is for them? Well, Although I know everybody doesn't know it. Um, what's your sense of it? I'd say it's going to be somewhat higher than 3%, but implicit in my answer is I believe the Fed has you know, kind of in economic terms, changed its reaction function and will be, is already and will be more tolerant of higher inflation. That is, uh, now that inflation has zoomed up, they don't have any intention of trying to push it back to two. Um, they still harbor this hope that when all the supply constraints dissipate, it will come down sharply, but they've been wrong on this and they've missed the, the soaring demand that, that's driven some of the excess demand. 
But I think if, if inflation trends down, as I expect in the second half of, of, of this year, and then comes down a bit further, um, if they get it down to three and a half, they will internally say, okay, let, let's pause a bit uh, um, and, and, and then be more opportunistic. Um, that is, let's not push the envelope on raising the funds rate so much that it, that it, it does raise the probability of recession. Thanks for that. Let me see if there's any questions in the queue. Um, can the, Richard Richard asks how can the the Fed increase interest rates while our national debt is so huge? Well, Richard, you're bringing out you know a really important question. Um, we have the, the government has an extraordinarily high uh, government debt. So when the Fed raises rates and at the same time, it um, it'll drive up bond yields, and re by reducing the size of the balance sheet, it'll also reduce the amount of net profits to the Fed from its balance sheet that it, re it remits to the Treasury. It will definitely increase um, the government's debt service costs, and that that is, um, I mean, that's inevitable, and and. You know, basically, you know, let, let's face the facts. Um, um, the government has high debt uh, in response to the pandemic. Uh, it, it was ex the government was extraordinarily generous. And I would say particularly the Biden administration's one point nine trillion dollar deficit package in March of, of 2021, you know, really was just over the top. And so now. And it was all financed by 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 effectively by the Fed, and so now you're paying the price for that. You can't just you can't just you know be so expansive on monetary and fiscal policy, and not have effects subsequently. And we're facing those effects. So so the government's going to have to deal with the higher debt costs. And the bottom line is, we all pay for it one way or the, or the other. And quantitative tightening, which the Fed is going to announce, I guess, the start of next week, that makes the the market absorb more treasuries. Is that right? I mean, more of the government debt. Well, th well, that's right. So, so the through its asset purchases, both following the financial crisis and and in response to the pandemic, the Fed has become the largest holder in the world of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And now as it unwinds a portion of that, and, and the portion they expect to unwind, the, the balance sheet's about $9 trillion combined now, and, and they expect to, to unwind a, a little over a trillion in the first 12 months. It just means that as the Fed's holdings decline, somebody else has to buy it. And the question is, Greg, at what price? And and presumably, uh, you know, the price will go down and, and bond yields will go up. Particularly, we have to rely on, on, on foreign buyers. So far, the dollar has been strong, uh, you know, fulfilling its role as, as um, you know, the, the, the safe haven in the world, particularly, you know, with everything going on in Russia and, and China. But I expect bond yields to go up and somebody else is going to hold it. So the yield curve, 
although people look at the yield curve closely, it's going to be important to watch the yield curve after the quantitative tightening process starts. We'll see some signals then. No, that's right. And and one thing I would point out is just a benchmark. Um, from 2015, December 2015 to September 2018, the Fed uh, raised rates ever so gradually from zero to two and a half percent. And it unwound its balance sheet ever so gradually. And by the end of September 2018, inflation was 2.3% and, and the 10-year Treasury bond yield got up to uh, 3.25. So now, as the, Fed, the Fed's going to raise rates more aggressively, it's going to unwind its balance sheet more aggressively. Inflation is much, much, much higher, but it should be coming down. Where will bond yields go to? Big question. And, and Greg, as you know, when bond yields go up, and in fact, as the Fed unwinds its MBS portfolio, it should put more upper pressure on mortgage rates. And you know, just getting auto loans and consumer loans and, and financing the government debt, it, it, it all, it all uh, is going to be affected. It, it affects everybody. So we have another question from Hal, who who asks, um, will this be, what about bank stocks in this period? Will, will, um, will it be good time for banks now? I guess with a higher, higher yield curve is good for banks. That's well, you know, so look, I'm an economist and not, not mm. a, a <laughs> stock analyst, but let, let me make the following observation. You know, U.S. banks, um, you know, they're, they're traditionally considered um, a, a good indicator of just economic performance in in general so banks um they're they've actually done quite well in here because for the thousands of banks um the mo most of their loans are based on you know a libor or so far plus a few percentage points and those short rate benchmarks have gone up as the fed as the fed funds futures rate has built in higher Fed tightenings. So banks, as we speak, are already charging more for their loans. And they're, you know, and, and so their net interest margins are are going up. So banks are in pretty, pretty good shape. But you know, your guess is as good as mine about the, the timing. But basically what's happened here is their price earnings ratios have come down. Um, and if the economy stays afloat, you know, they're they're a good indicator of of the future. Back on the economic outlook, there's a, a lot of talk you can't move without people saying that the next thing down the road is going to be stagflation, where the economy is weak, but inflation stays too hot. What's your view on that? Is okay, that Greg, this is a this is a tough issue. And, and I'd like to emphasize the answer is not black or white. That is, there's a, there's a gray area between, you know, slower economic growth, really slow growth and a mild recession. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gray area. But when we think about it, a stagflation stems from supply constraints and excess demand driven by too much monetary and fiscal stimulus. And so we, we kind of have the ingredients for it now but now let's consider each side of that. I expect that the supply constraints 
as they affect the U.S. are going to start to uh, dissipate some. Um, of course, that hinges on what happens in, in, in China. The U.S. is much more uh, uh, isolated, insulated from some of the supply disruptions from Russia that are really going to hit you know, Germany and, and, and Europe. So I expect the supply constraints to ease up. We're actually already starting to see, you know, pretty solid gains on the industrial side. And if you look at, at, at business, um, uh, you know, manufacturing and wholesale and retail inventories, they're, they're looking like things are flowing a little bit more smoothly. Now, the issue on demand is the Fed, once again, has to raise rates just enough to slow demand, take the edge off inflation without tightening too much that's going to harm the economy. Um, and so I would say, I mean, my baseline forecast right now is sustained economic growth, but much slower growth, much, much slower growth. But but I, I can't rule out a recession and we just we just have to wait and see. But once again, even if we were to have a mild recession, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. The U.S. has by far the highest long-run potential growth of any advanced nation in the world. And, you know, life will go on and, and the, 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 the longer-term prospects are quite positive. And you were saying that you, you were surprised how inflation has become so political when we were talking. I was wondering if you could chat a little bit more about that, flesh that out. Yeah, sure, Greg. Let, let's, let's think about this. Um, low inflation and low inflationary expectations. I mean, that's that's the the best foundation for sustained economic growth and sustained maximum inclusive job creation. And the other angle on this is if we think about like middle and lower income earners, their biggest uh, expenses are um, shelter, the cost of housing or renting, um, food and energy. And so if you were to put together a market basket for those people, I would say their inflation um, is way above, you know, the 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 five or six or seven percent that are in the in the PCE price index and CPI. And so my point is we all benefit from lower inflation in, in the Fed doing the right thing and keeping inflation under control. But I've noticed in the last year and a half, a lot of the, the, the commentary is, you know, unfortunately pretty, it's become better, but it's pretty superficial and driven in part by political positioning. And it really shouldn't be. It, it should be, we should all say, okay, um, when inflation started rising significantly last year, um, the Fed should have addressed things much earlier on and said, listen, you know, we had thought it was transitory, but it just hasn't gone away. Now it looks like demand's picking up and we're going to have to slow things down. And the reason why we're doing it is to create, the reason why we're going to have to raise rates to slow inflation is to create that that better foundation that's going to be better for all of us in, in terms of economic performance. So what did the Fed get wrong? What, 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 what caused them to slip up there? 
Greg, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, their models uh, that are run by their Fed staff um, forecasts all through last year that inflation is going to come back to 2%. I think it's more of a, a human error. And it's simply the following, or at least this was a heavy ingredient. Following the great financial crisis in 2008-9, the Fed kept rates at zero and, um, and it did its quantitative easing, pumped up its balance sheet, and inflation stayed low. Now, the Fed has never analyzed carefully why it stayed low. But I think following the, the pandemic, when the Fed moved to aggressive ease and there was tremendous, uh, unprecedented fiscal stimulus, the Fed presumed that inflation would stay low. It would follow the same pattern it did after the financial crisis. And so that's when it was so sanguine. So I think it's, it's this kind of like psychological misread, whereas the reason why inflation stayed low after the, after the uh, financial crisis is all of the Fed's quantitative easing, I mean, all it did was build up bank reserves that sloshed around between the big banks and the Fed and was never put to work in the economy. And once again, Greg, if you think about that period, banks were crippled. The housing market was crippled. Um, household balance sheets were devastated. This, everything's completely the opposite, but the Fed made this wrong presumption. And I think that that was a human error. It's like the, the general fighting the last battle, whereas history shows clearly that profligate fiscal uh, deficits accommodated by monetary ease generates high inflation. And, and, the, and the post-financial crisis period was more the anomaly. But I think so. I think the, it was a lot of human error in what the Fed did and misjudgment. Um, it's really it, it's really an interesting issue. It's one of the questions is that it seemed to be inflation all over the world. So at the same time, which it wasn't really tied to Fed policy around the world. Is, so that. Well, I think you're bringing out a very, very good point that once again, um, let's be even handed about this. We've had inflation go in the U.S. from, say, one and three quarters percent to you know, above 6% based on the PCE price index, over uh, 8% on the CPI. And it's increased around the world. So my even-handed approach is, you know, some portion of the, um, the rise in inflation is due to supply constraints. There's no question. Oil prices have gone up. Food prices have gone up. Industrial material prices have gone up. There have been disruptions emanating out of the, the pandemic. Um, and, and, and there are tre tremendous disruptions, not only to production processes around the world and supply chains, but the distribution network. So you can attribute some portion of inflation to that. But then at the same time, there has been a surge in demand. Um, in 2021, there was the fastest growth in final sales in U.S. history. 
for the Fed to deny that the latter was occurring is, is a little odd. Now, if we look at that breakdown, um, the supply constraints are having a bigger impact on inflation in Europe than in the U.S. So once again, Greg, this gets to, to a great issue. How much does the Fed have to raise rates? Well, it can't do anything in response to supply constraints. So if it basically said, okay, let's say half of the rise in inflation is due to, due to supply constraints and half of it's due to um, excess demand, then they would say, okay, so let's aim you know, to raise to raise rates as if the underlying rate of inflation is in the, in the four range. And I think that would be a very healthy approach. We have a, questions are flying in. We don't have all that much time. Let's see if we can get at some of them. Nick asks, and I'm just going to read this. It seems long, but I'll stick with me. Nick says, does the accepted forecast of inflation factor in the impact of major changes in the supply chain? Example, reshoring of diversifying sources to minimize or remove the type of cost pressures we're seeing due to Ukraine and China. Well, I'd say that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, forecasting inflation is hard at any time and, and faces challenges. But your point about onshoring brings up another issue. Um, I would say my forecast is inflation stays elevated. But let me, let me just, you know, mention the following. I had thought over the last couple of years there would be a, a tremendous amount of onshoring stemming out of, out of China. I've been very surprised that, by and large, most U.S. businesses have not changed their supply chain exposure to China, and they haven't changed that much. Maybe some low-tech companies have, but, the, but most big firms in the high-techs you have not seen on onshoring as I would have expected. You know, maybe the, the, what, what Russia is doing now, maybe that's the straw that breaks the camel back. We'll have to see. But right now, I have not seen that much onshoring, and it certainly hasn't shown up in the data. And all this commentary about the end of globalization, um, I don't see it yet. And um, Gabriel has a question, and it's a good one because uh, we haven't talked about it at all. It's the real estate sector. What's, right, what's your outlook for housing? Um, Great question. I mean, the, the there's no question, but that the higher mortgage rates and, and like a, a conventional 30 rate mortgage, 30 year mortgage has, has, has moved, you know, from the low threes to over 5% now. And that will uh, affect housing, particularly in the, in the middle and lower ends of the market, because, because purchasers there are very sensitive to their monthly payments. I might also note, however, their, the, the costs of renting have gone up. But even if it slows housing down, the under, underlying fundamentals for housing are still quite positive. Um, the demographics, the mobility trends, um, and, there, and there's still lack of supply. Builders haven't been able to build them fast enough. So, so I'll give you a mixed message here. In the, in the intermediate term, uh, still quite positive. In the near term, you know, you are going to feel the effects of the, of the higher mortgage rates as, as they work through and, and slow down demand a bit. 
And one of the things I just wanted to press on about inflation and the outlook is I've heard many times over the years is that inflation is sticky, right? It, it Once it gets up, it's hard to get down. Is that is that sort of like the, the, the underlying thought here? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it is. Well, I would say, Greg, it's sticky and it also... Uh, moves with a lag. So think about the think about you know the monetary and fiscal impetus that, that drives demand, and that affects the real economy. And then it affects inflation with a lag. And and inflation and wages are, are sticky, and they're all the stickier if inflationary expectations rise and become embedded in price and and wage setting behavior. So if we think about, you know, the plumbing of the inflation process, you know, it all depends on how businesses look at their product demand, whether they can increase prices and and not lose market share. Um, Now we have very tight labor markets um, and, and, and real wages, that is real wages are declining. So yeah, expect some stickiness here. And uh, again, it does seem like the wages, if you look around, people are wanting higher wages. And it, I think that's going to, I don't see how that's going to ease off, you know. Doesn't... I don't blame workers. They've right. been productive. Um, you know, uh, labor markets are exceedingly tight. Uh, the, the demand for labor is uh, at an all-time high as measured by job openings. Um there's a lot of job mobility, um, and so I expect uh, workers will get more. And, and not only because uh, they're they're productive and labor markets are tight, but also as a catch up to inflation, you would expect real wages to be rising, and and I expect that's going to happen. And and Greg, along with that comes a higher if we think of the national income, a higher return to labor and and some decline in the return to capital. That is squeeze margins. Let's take a few more questions. Um, See what I got here. Uh, Somebody asked, was Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, was his views on inflation? I guess last year he wanted less fiscal spending and he kind of Block the Build Back Better program. So, was, do you think he was on the right path there last year? Was was there too much fiscal? That last package from Biden was that was that almost too much? My opinion, the answer is yes. Um, when we think about when that was uh, being debated in the first quarter of 2021, you already had a very a very strong economic rebound. Um, and you didn't need more stimulus. Now, Greg, let me toss out the following point. The pandemic was devastating, and we had a 9% decline in GDP and soaring unemployment. Um, The first government response, the CARES package, I think was appropriate. But after that, the government had a long time to think about how to... um, put together the next package, and it really didn't think through clearly. So my response would have been um, another fiscal package would have been just fine 
if it would have been allocated, give three times more to people who really needed it, who were unemployed and not just, you know, cut checks to everybody where, you know, you know, the vast majority of people receiving checks um, already had jobs and savings. And so it was, it was a, it was a pretty um, politically motivated litmus test type of response that, that Joe Manchin and, and other moderates push back on. And I, I wish it could have been, you know, redone um, because that type of spending, if it had been better allocated, we would have had much better performance. Is there anything the White House can do or in general about it, high, this high inflation now? Or, I mean, tariffs, if they would no. go? No. Um, let, let, me, let me make the following observation. Um, I, I wish President Biden would make a simple statement. And that is, um, we all benefit from lower inflation. Um, and, and in the long run, we all want to move our energy toward renewables. And, but in the near term, um, I'm going to work with uh, our oil producers and distributors to you know, increase production that's clean, but it's also consistent with our national security. If he were to just say that, oil prices would come down to $75 a barrel and we'd really take the edge off inflation very quickly. Um, and it's, it's too bad he's been unwilling and his administration is, is against even making what, what seems to me would be a, a common sense um, statement and policy. Well, I, I really want to thank you, Mickey, for taking the time today. Um, just to highlight for listeners that Mickey's giving a talk, I think, Friday. There's the Shadow Open Market Committee, which keeps an eye on the Fed, is having a conference. And then next week, Mickey will be appearing at the, the Hoover Institute out in Stanford, California, is having a major monetary policy conference. And Mickey will have a voice in, the, in, in those proceedings. You can look online for those. And keep up with marketwatch.com. We'll try to keep an eye on it for you. Um, just so, to let everyone know that tomorrow um, we have Barron's managing editor Lauren Rubin and deputy editor Alex Ewell. We'll talk all about the tech earnings this week. And I bet you they'll talk a little bit about Elon Musk and Twitter. So, again, thank everyone for coming today. And thank you again, Mickey. Talk to you. Have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.